to Esoteric America, a podcast where we tour the strange, mystical, and esoteric pathways hidden beneath the surface of America. Join Mark, Tara, Roman, Chad, and a new local researcher each episode as we dive into our country's diverse regions, states, counties, cities, towns, neighborhoods, parks, etc., leaving no stone unturned as we unravel the cult knots that tie history, culture, religion, all in with fringe elements that you may not have realized were at play in your own backyard. and gentlemen back again from our hiatus here we are the esoteric america crew of course i've got tara sitting next to me tara how are you today i'm really grateful to be here there she is now she's on camera grateful to be here her and i have been doing some exciting research into our local area and uh yeah i mean i'm getting a little nervous around here because there's been so much research (laughs) that we've been doing i don't know how we're going to squeeze it all in i may be a little nervous that we're not going to get to it all but i can't do this show we can't do this show without chad and roman here together all four of us in the same zoom call it's real nice uh to have us all back (laughs) it's been a while chad roman uh, what are you guys thinking? I mean, we've been talking about Connecticut for a while now. Are you guys sick of it yet, or uh, you ready to move on to another place? What are your thoughts on Connecticut thus far? Definitely not sick of it. See, I'm uh, I'm actually very ex- learned so much about Connecticut and even the New England New England area that I had no clue about before. You know, I'm I'm grateful. Mm-hmm. I'm very grateful for this last month and. The, inspired to go out that way at some point you know hopefully i can't wait mm. but like i said i'm grateful for what i've learned and for what you guys shared and looking forward to tonight and definitely not sick of it cool cool yeah good uh good on us to give people a reason to come <laughs> on over to our neck of the woods saves us a, a little bit of money and you know what connecticut doesn't have the best reputation so hopefully we can uh resurrect it right what do you think tara Mm -hmm. well yeah yeah it's nice to put connecticut out there and let people know that it's here um and uh yeah Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm the opposite, man. I'm sick and tired of it. Can't wait to get out of here. Oh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love it, man. I, especially yeah. uh, the last, the, the bigger, uh, uh, rabbit hole we went down with PT Barnum on the last one, you know, like it was like, Oh, I'm so glad that we got to touch on that. Uh, cause I've always loved that fascinating character. And you know, now I'm excited to get into the gravy of what, uh, y'all with the boots on the ground boots, Mm. on the ground stuff so that's always the best so um super stoked excited to see where the crazy 
train is going to take us next. Um, you know, maybe uh, a, train. a crazy train. Uh oh, yo, yeah. Uh, I mean, we could talk about some. Maybe we should talk about Ohio. What's popping off in Ohio yeah. on an esoteric level? You know, I don't know. Uh, we're not. We're not that. We might topical. have some stuff on New Haven trains today. Oh, you do. Okay. Okay. Little bit. Ooh, that's interesting. All right. Well, as much as I want you to go first, uh, Chad, I think no, I should no. go first because uh, every other time I elected to go last, we didn't have enough time. So um, let's <laughs> no, get, you go first. Let's get right into it. And I do want to give a shout out to our last guest um, who was able to join us mm-hmm. to talk about uh, P.T. Barnum. His name was, I want to say Jason, but if it's Justin, I'm sorry, Justin. I'm pretty sure it was Jason, right? Jason, right? We talked to Jason. Yeah. Double check. Mm -hmm. Double checking right now. Jason slash, yes, Jason. Thank you, Jason. Sorry to the Justin out there who got confused. But yeah, so shout out to Jason. Jason. If you want to join us on the show, uh, most likely we're going to be talking about California next. If you live in that area, uh, specifically the northern uh, portion Mm -hmm. of California, I think we're going to be setting our sights there on the Emerald Triangle next. So um, stay tuned for that. But today we are going to conclude our journey through new haven and uh we cannot we cannot leave connecticut without spending a little bit more time talking about yale university because yale university after all actually yeah i'm I'm excited to move on (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) (laughs) you had to say that now to take the wind out of my sails Um, well and you know, Yale, we can't leave Connecticut without talking about Yale because uh, New Haven really was built around Yale University. It's, uh, you know, although New Haven's yeah. older than Yale, I don't think New Haven would be what it is today without Yale. So, yeah, we're going to talk about the architecture. We're going to talk about the street layout. And we're going to talk about some of the uh, characters that have contributed to Yale's long, long, long history. So, um, before we get into that, do you guys have any questions for me about Yale? Any, uh, questions about this particular area? What are some true crime stories coming out of Yale? Uh, mm-hmm. there's a few, um, true crime, true crime. <laughs> All right. Are you going to start <laughs> chanting to get what you want on the show, Roman? <laughs> yes. That's not, not going to work. Um, Demand service. No, no, no. There have been plenty of crimes in New Haven. It is uh, affectionately nicknamed Gunwave in New Haven, but uh, <laughs> Yale actually has a few really weird crimes that have taken place. Uh, oh, and a student, I think, like in 2014, was found inside of, this is graphic, folks, she was found inside of the wall. Somebody killed her and uh, put her in the wall like basically like you know opened up the wall and then re-spackled it and she was just in like that between space in a wall somewhere on campus and uh she went missing obviously her body was discovered sometime after and they caught the guy who did it so uh 
Yeah, really weird, unexplained case. I don't know if they ever got like a clear motive from that guy and why he killed that girl. But uh, for a while, Yale was being rocked with that sort of uh, really sad affair, uh, dealing with the aftermath and so on. But uh, I wasn't really prepared for a true crime question, Roman. That's <laughs> sorry. What is that? But real quick though, just because I have a question on that. Uh, was that recently? Yeah, like long, within the last ten that? years. There was that movie Stir of Echoes. I don't know if you guys remember with Kevin Bacon. That was really good. Uh, like was the he early a ghost? No, he he like he finds uh, the whole time. There's like this. Uh, he got hypnotized in the beginning of the movie, and then there's he finds this woman who's uh, this girl that was buried in the walls by these like college kids that like put her in between these walls. And uh, I really like that movie. Uh, I'm not I haven't seen like every Kevin Bacon movie that exists, but this no, movie I called Story Backos was pretty good. Yeah, he kept seeing red the whole time. Every time he would see red, he would get this like vision. He'd be digging in people's yards, like where is this woman at? Yeah. Anyways. That's what I reminded me of. I was like, oh, in the wall, because you don't hear that often, you know? So I was like, I wonder if the movie was based off of that or... Um, um, I doubt it. Uh, this happened in 20... Uh, actually, 2009, so 13 years ago. And, uh, yeah, she was strangled on the Yale campus and then uh, left inside of a cable chase in the wall of the basement laboratory uh, on Amistad Street in Yale. So, yeah, you know, kind of a darker aspect of uh, student life. I don't know if they're very pr proud of that, but, um, you know, it's kind of confusing. I mean, maybe being a doctoral yeah. student or something like, uh, or, or the, I don't know exactly what the murderer's motive was or, or his situation and how he was even, you know, at Yale, I don't think he was a student. I think he was more like a janitor or something. But, uh, but yeah, very, very sad. And uh, I'm sure it's not the first time weird crimes have taken place at Yale because Yale is uh, famous in our circles for Skull and Bones, Skull the and bones. secret society that uh, is connected to possibly grave robbers, possibly, uh, you know, organizations like the cfr the bilderbergs the Ooh. you know council on Everything. uh yeah well all the all the movers and shakers bohemian grove um <clears throat> yeah so you get the point skull and bones was initially why i became fascinated with yale um i've told this story many times so i won't go too far into detail but when i was a student at Gateway Community College in New Haven. I met a gentleman who is a Native American from Arizona who told me about his ancestor, Geronimo, and how his skull and crossbones, femur bones, had been robbed from his grave and brought to the tomb on High Street. And uh, me being a you know 18-year-old, sort of naive, very interested in this kind of thing, and Definitely looking into conspiracy theories already. I jumped all over the opportunity to get to know this guy and as you know, learn as much as I could from him. Right? I mean, sure, he was a homeless Native American, but he was probably one of the smarter mentors I had ever had. You know, stack him up with my college professors and my uh, high school teachers. He was far wiser, and uh, yeah, basically taught me to be suspicious of everything and, and, you know, kind of take a closer look at things and 
also gave me some guidance as far as spirituality goes. And all of that being said, kind of led me on a journey that ended up with this amazing opportunity here between Tara and I to, to be able to look into all this stuff. And while you were inspired by Amos, right, to look into mm-hmm. skull and bones. That's what I just said. Yeah. I was... <clears throat> I was inspired by, like, the kids in high school. And all the hardcore bands that kind of like, like uh, mirrored the Skull and Bones influence in the hardcore scene there. And like I was just like reconnected with a friend before we met. And you were looking into Skull and Bones in New Haven and so was I in a way. So I just thought that was interesting. I do yeah, want to. I do want to hear more about your uh, <laughs> research into the hardcore scene. Do you think you want to wait till after my the Yale info, or you want to jump in with that now? No, you go ahead. Okay, so yeah, New Haven, very interesting place. Yale has Esoteric a, hardcore. Crazy. Yale has a big. Uh, you know, thumbprint on New Haven culture from music to food to shopping. I mean, literally New Haven is built around Yale and everything else is like hood, fast food and like, you know, uh, substandard conditions, which is unfortunate because Yale is a $42 billion uh, endowed school, $42 billion. That's more money than some royalty in the world right i mean 42 billion dollars is larger than the gdp of a lot of countries not just some countries a lot of countries right so it's just incredible that yale university this place that occupies uh i don't know a couple hundred square miles very you know not even i think that's probably an overstatement you know 50 or so square miles uh altogether this place has $42 billion, okay? And if you walk 10, 15 minutes off campus, you're in a neighborhood where the average income is probably $12,000 a year, $15,000 a year. I mean, think about that. People on, on government, you know, support, Social Security, welfare, right? So you just have to wonder, like... Uh, you know, it makes you wonder living in a place like this, like what, why is Yale here? What do they, you know, what do we gain from, you know, their presence here? And really the story can't be answered that simply because Yale preempted the whole nation. I mean, Yale is older than the country that it's in. It was founded in 1717 and it initially was a school for, um, well, priests and clergymen uh, and men only no women so it was a you know primarily a religious orientated school with a uh, primarily a religious curriculum they had bibles they had greek and roman books and uh, that was about it 
and as New Haven expanded, the American idea of a university expanded with it. You know, they started integrating all these different schools, and it became more than just learning language and learning law uh, and learning, obviously, what the Bible said. It became what we consider a true university, arithmetic, you know, geometry, and, you know, it's been a while since I've been in school and looked at a course book, but you get what I'm saying. There's social studies and all the other classes. They started integrating what is known as a liberal arts education system here in the United States, when at the time, you know, this was something that really only Harvard and, uh, I'm sorry, really only Cambridge and Oxford you know, before Harvard and Yale, it was really only Cambridge and Oxford that had these types of school systems. For the most part, everything else was either connected explicitly to the government or explicitly to a church. Um, so it was kind of a rare thing for this, you know, public institution to be dedicated to education. It's uniquely kind of like an American idea. And Yale and New Haven became sort of a patriotic place, Nathan Hale and all these other guys that participated in the American Revolution. Nathan Hale was America's first spy. Um, well, one of America's first spies. They helped fight in this American Revolution and made New Haven, uh, you know, quintessentially colonial place, right? You know, part of the 13 colonies uh, with all the accolades of you know, fighting in this revolutionary war. We have a monument on top of East Rock Mountain, which we talked about in a previous episode being the head of a giant. This Soldiers and Sailors Monument is, uh, you know, there to memorialize all of the revolutionary soldiers that fought in the Revolutionary War from Connecticut. And then I think... It was built in the Civil War time, so they have everybody who fought in the War of 1812 and everybody who fought in the Civil War memorialized there as well. So, kind of got lost there for a moment, but my point is, New Haven is a <laughs> very old place with a very interesting history, and uh, yeah, let's take a look at some of the There's architecture. There's a reason why it has all this money. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But why don't we take a look at some of the uh, some of the photos? What do you say? Oh yeah, you got some slides? No, I have some photos. Slide in with some photos. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I mean, there's needless to say. Well, maybe it's not needless to say, but there is just so much to really tackle on to the whole skull and bones, secret society, Yale situation. That it seems like where is like the best place to start, but uh, you know what I mean. Like it's it's thick. It's some thick gravy. Mm. Yeah. So all right. So let me just uh, share my window here so you guys could see. Let me know when this is uh, visible. Good to go. Cool. All right. So 
What you're looking at here is one of the older photos I was able to find. This is what the New Haven Green uh, looked like at one time facing, uh, I believe we're facing the north because, yeah, we're facing the north from this perspective. So here is the original center of New Haven. Everything was built around this green park area. And as you can see, this park, this particular section of the green is lined with elm trees. You have the pathway here down the center that has now evolved into Temple Street. And on Temple Street are three churches, the three original churches that were built on the green. Um, you have the old light, the new light, and then uh, the Anglican Church, I believe. So three different sort of denominations, all Christian uh, and all New Havenites. What I mean by that is, well, New Haven, you can interpret that as possibly New Heaven, uh, because the people who settled in New Haven were exiles. They left the European wars between the Protestants and the Catholics and the Anglican churches, and they decided they would seek refuge here in this new world, and they liken this new world to a, uh, well, a new Jerusalem, right? And their idea was that they were waiting for God's judgment in the final days. So uh, if they could turn this into uh, a place that God would look favorably down upon, then they would possibly avoid whatever damnation was coming to those wicked Europeans that they had left behind, right? They felt like by going to this new world, this new Jerusalem, that they would be avoiding God's wrath because the old world and the Catholic Church had become, you know, evil and tainted, and and now it's time for God to wipe the slate clean. So where better to go in this tumultuous times than, uh, you know, a place where maybe God's not really paying attention, right? So this is this was the idea with a place like New Haven, uh, New Haven's also been interpreted as New Harbor. And uh, what's funny is it's kind of a very old harbor. Like we talked about in a previous episode, Lake, Lake Hitchcock, which is now the Connecticut River, used to go all the way down into New Haven. And it's why New Haven has such a deep harbor. Uh, the river being there, you know, created this very deep harbor that, you know, when looking at it now, doesn't make much sense unless you understand that there used to be a very large river that ran through here. So New Haven was kind of an ideal place for a colony at the time, being on the water, situated in between Boston and New York City, situated somewhat near the Connecticut River, and of course, uh, you know, kind of halfway between the Hudson River and the Atlantic Ocean. So a good place for people who are trading. But as we talked about in previous episodes, it wasn't really the case. Now, um, New Haven's Green has these odd pentagram-like pathworks carved into the surface. You guys see that? You notice that, like, pentagram shape there? Absolutely. Yeah, and I've, I've always saw that and. I wasn't quite sure what to make of it, but I'm starting to think that there's some sort of gematria going on, possibly, or some sort of, uh, 
Western mandala that's being created using the grid of the city. And the pathworks are sort of connecting the dots. But more, more on that theory uh, at a later time. So let's keep fl- flying through these pictures. Here's another angle of the green. Ah, here's an interesting picture. This is uh, one of the annual mm-hmm. parades that used to take place in New Haven. Uh, this is most likely a float mm-hmm. designed to uh, represent the Spanish and the pilgrims settling the new world. As you can see, everybody's kind of dressed, uh, you know, even at the time when this picture was taken, that was outdated dress, believe it or not. Uh, kind of Spanish-looking armor there. Yeah, they're basically costumes. So, But there, there's a... Uh, I think this is kind of like a New England tradition for towns to do these little parades uh, in the center on certain holidays. Big uh, steed. So. That is a big steed. There you are, Roman. What happened to your mic? You sound a little odd there. Yeah, it, uh, <clears throat> the fancy little button to went, went, uh, went away from me for a second. Mm-hmm. But that steed was huge, man. Can you go back to that picture? You want to look at the horse? I want to look at that horse again. I think everybody's <laughs> just really short in this picture. <laughs> Anyways. Big steed. Anyways. Love horses. So all over New Haven, we have these sort of, um, well, Egyptian-looking buildings or old, really old, old-world-looking buildings. Here's the cemetery that i mentioned once or twice this is the gates to the cemetery in new haven this picture was taken i think in the you know late 1800s at some time maybe early 1900s so it doesn't quite look like this anymore um but the original you know the gate is still all original and the building behind it is still there as well what do you guys think of this does anything jump out when you see this yeah how about the you know the winged sun, the winged disc on top with the, uh, the double serpent symbolism coming out of it. Right. And then right below it says the dead shall be raised. I mean, obviously yeah. is that, is that still intact to this day? Yep. Yeah. yeah we have some pretty much looks like that still. Yeah. We have some uh, photos of it, like recent photos of it and it looks exactly the same. Uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting cemetery. As I've talked about before, it's the first cemetery in American history of its kind. Never before did they have cemeteries with individual plots and roads and things like that, at least in America. So it's a very unique place in American history. This road that leads up to the cemetery if you were the person taking this picture, you'd actually be standing in the center of an intersection of two roads, right? One going, um, you know, parallel to the cemetery and one going um, you know, equilateral or what's the other word? Perpendicular to the cemetery. So this road, this perpendicular road that leads straight into the gate of the cemetery, this I've described as a sort of funerary road or a corpse road and there's a whole tradition of corpse roads in england where a road that led from a church to a cemetery would often be considered haunted 
Okay, so why is that important? Why is it important to point out that this uh, cemetery in New Haven could be haunted? Any any thoughts as to why that might be? Um, Ancient I mean, burial ground? Ding, 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 ding. We're heading close. <laughs> we got any other guesses? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. I was going to say Indian, like stacking burial mounds on top of burial mounds or burying uh, like a sync, like a classic syncretic stack. Well, bodies on bodies. It is something like that. It's not quite a direct path, but essentially what happened, um, and I guess you can think of this in a, in a spiritual way, that when those bodies were moved from the old cemetery to the newly built cemetery that they were sort of taken on their own journey down a, a corpse road right so uh, I don't I don't know exactly which way they would have went to do that but they probably would have took the shortest route right those bodies were rotten and stinky and they weren't gonna dilly dally so they probably cut through the old campus and went right along high street straight into the new cemetery which is exactly uh, where we were just looking at before, the, the gates to the cemetery is right at the end of this yellow line here. Uh, and along this yellow line that's called High Street, we have the Skull and Bones tomb, uh, both of the art galleries, uh, the original Yale Church, uh, Harkness Tower, which was paid for by Standard Oil, uh, the old campus, Trumbull Hall, Sterling Memorial Library, the Yale Law School, the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript, library and also uh the cross campus where berkeley calhoun and other buildings uh where students sleep are are present so you know all of these important school buildings situated on this road well one-way road that leads straight into the cemetery uh i don't think that's by accident and as a matter of fact roman uh or i'm sorry excuse me chad has kind of compounded my suspicion by showing me something that I just did not think of at all, and that is the fact that this Beinecke Rare Book Manuscript Library is held up by columns that give it the illusion of it being sort of like a pedestaled boulder, the kind that we saw in our previous episodes where we were talking about uh, the, the stones at North Salem, New York, and all these other big, massive stones being held up by relatively, in comparison, smaller stones. And that's exactly what this Beinecke Rare Memorial, Rare Manuscript Library is supposed to be alluding to. Uh, not to mention this area right here to the immediate bottom left of the Beinecke Library. This, like, wall right there, Chad... That's where the mm -hmm. Osama Noguchi Sculpture Garden is. Yep. So folks who remember our conversation with Chad, whether on my podcast or on this one, when we talked about Detroit, you may remember this character, Osama Noguchi. Well, funny enough, he built a sculpture garden here in New Haven, right in the heat of all this action uh, next to the rare book manuscript library you can see on the right hand side what it looks like from the inside these white panels are actually somewhat transparent so they sort of glow and take the light into the building 
And this uh, library houses some pretty interesting stuff. It houses a copy of the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And also co houses the only known copy of the Voynich Manuscript, which is still yet to be deciphered. Here's an, another shot of that construction feature. The way that the building looks to be held up on either four sides is, again, it's kind of reminiscent of this uh, pedestaled boulder that Yale President Ezra Stiles would have been uh, aware of since he was cataloging the world of the Native Americans and had a keen eye for certain petroglyphs and stone uh, well, stone structures that the natives would create. So I think all of this is adding up in a way that you, know, you just can't dismiss the esotericism inlaid within all these designs. We go back to the cemetery gate. It's reminiscent of the Hermopolis temple at Ashmoon, it's also kind of similar to the design for the temple at uh, Dendera, which is up here. Mm -hmm. And it has that same sun raw disc right there. So, yeah, it's mm -hmm. kind of uh, interesting. <clears throat> this is sort of what I've come to, to find, you know, decoding everything. Uh, you, know, you have these sort of Egyptian syncretisms and then this one the nike temple book and snake tomb mm -hmm. looks exactly like the old nike temple nike being the greek god of war uh not the greek god of shoes despite what you <laughs> might think um and the, and the the egyptian uh revival here Again, we have this caduceus sort of uh, fence post, and that's not just one. The whole fence surrounding the book and snake tomb, which is kind of connected to skull and bones, is this caduceus going around a torch. Uh, so, yeah, and also the, the building itself is made out of master mason blocks, the white ashlar blocks. So a lot of, a lot of info that I just ran through. But you see this picture starting to come together of, uh, you know, buildings that have this esoteric significance, taking ancient things and bringing them back into the present in stone. Even the dinosaurs, the dinosaurs have been, you know, resurrected from their boneyards and brought back into the human world through the Peabody Institute, which is in New Haven. Uh, this gentleman who you see seated next to uh, Yale Peabody Museum is Othniel Charles Marsh, who was one of the premier early paleontologists who really helped push that science or pseudoscience, depending on who you talk to, uh, they helped push that forward. And, you know, a lot of people who have a uh, more of a biblical look of the world, they don't see a place for dinosaurs in history, right? They think dinosaurs are sort of um, a fabrication in order to give people an illusion of earth not being created by God. And I, I don't have a you know strong opinion either way, but I have more reason to believe that a group like Yale University could be responsible for changing perspective, changing perception. 
and doing it in a way that it really has a detrimental effect on the rest of the world. And the way you do something like that is by telling someone that, you know, the sky that you thought was blue is actually purple and, you know, the grass you thought was green is actually red and you're colorblind. And, you know, even though you mm-hmm. see it as blue and, and green, it's actually purple and red and just, you know, forget what you've learned about blue and green because it's all wrong and it's actually purple and red. And, uh, you know, when people start to, like, see, like, no, 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 it's blue to me, it's always been blue to me, and they really just trust their intuition instead of trusting this authority, they might have more suspicion about something like a dinosaur, uh, especially considering, you know, we have equal evidence for the existence of giants. We find their skeletons all the time, but you don't have museums or blockbuster movies depicting, you know, giants being resurrected and kept in some zoo park, right? But Jurassic Park does it. giants at all, really. Yeah, yeah. If you do see a giant in a movie... It's a green bean can. If you do see a giant in a movie, it's cartoonish. It's fairy tale, like Tara, like the green bean giant, right? I mean, it's it's not taken (laughs) seriously, but you, you find a triceratops and it's like, oh, wow, this is, you know, proof of something. And... I don't, I don't think dinosaurs are altogether made up, but I do think that there's uh, a lot of room in a science like paleontology for certain things to get maybe fudged around, right? Because we know the timetables time are off just based on some things that you've actually shown us, Chad, with this uh, mastodon carving under Lake Michigan. If humans and dinosaurs never existed together, well, how does that make any sense right i mean traditional paleontologists suggest that a lot of the dinosaurs were gone by the time humans were around and the only humans that were around to see those beings were like very primitive and probably didn't have the ability to carve stones so you know i think there's still yet you know a lot to be explained uh and yale more often than not they're the types to say nope case closed right and uh Yale's also big in the Pfizer pockets as well. I mean, there's like probably four or five pharmaceutical companies that are located in New Haven. So, yeah, I I mean, that should tell you everything right there, (laughs) their connection to the medical industry and, you know, how how Mm -hmm. trustworthy have they been over the past four years with the truth, right? So, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, unfortunately, archaeology and paleontology and all of these specific branches of science are like some of the most heavily controlled um, areas of of science and research that you can do, you know, uh, specifically all the things you talked about, dinosaurs, Egyptology, like. Well, check this out. So we we talk about dinosaurs and this is this is where I was kind of building up to. So. We talk about dinosaurs as what? Fossil fuels, right? The whole theory with gas is that it's a fossil that has, you know, turned into a fuel somehow in the earth. And initially when f- this stuff was discovered, they called it rock oil. They didn't call it fossil fuels. They didn't have anything to do with fossils. You know, fossils are uh, living material that are petrified that are literally turned to stone bones of course are fossils but bones are already you know calcified as you know living tissue so 
bones take a long, 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 long time to disintegrate back into the geological table. Whereas, uh, you know, living tissue can only be fossilized in situations like a peat bog or amber drips, right? Where an amber, you know, drip catches a whole mosquito. And then you can see like this weird mosquito floating in the amber. And it's like three feet long because it's from the Jurassic period. Like, you know, there is a, there is a difference between a fossil and fossil fuels. And the same folks who invented, we'll say, or discovered, they want to say, the science of dinosaurs, paleontology, uh, they're the same folks who invented oil or, or the uses for oil, right? They didn't invent it in the ground. They pulled it out of the ground and said, what can we do with this? So rock oil became fossil fuels uh, thanks to the developments done at Yale by guys like Benjamin Silliman, who was a professor who was the first person to, uh, I think, turn rock oil into like petroleum or, or, you know, I don't know the exact chemistry of it, but they made it into a usable, you know, energy source as opposed to just some oil that, you know, I don't know what they're using it for prior, but, you know, this was very helpful, uh, you know. The whaling industry was huge because of all of the, you know, resources that you can get from a whale, one, but also because of all the blubber, which generated like wax and oils and things that could be used for candles, things that can be used maybe even to uh, run small machines. So, yeah, they were inventing things like that and trying to find a fuel source. Obviously, whales were not a renewable fuel source, so they found this rock oil underground and made a fortune. I mean, the whole robber baron generation was born through this westward expansion oil grab, right? This land grab, oil grab, resource grab, and... uh the Native Americans lost their land because of all of the resources that were out there in the West, right? I mean, they were basically um, pushed off their land so that they can, you know, so that their resources would be forfeited and they could, you know, be used for the profit of this new country. So it's, it's you know, it's a tragic history, but uh, I think Yale not only is to blame for, uh, well, you know, to blame is the wrong word. Uh, they're responsible for the development of fuel, oil, fossil fuels. They're also responsible for the development of the Indian Wars, which led to one of the greatest genocides in Amer in well in American history certainly, but in human history. You know, as far as we know, there were 44 million indigenous people in just North America when the Spanish first settled or landed so uh, that that's millions and millions of people that unfortunately perished in uh, you know short couple hundred years as the colonists moved westward and Yale University you know their bright minds they legally justified in court the uh, removal of the Native American the Carlisle Indian School was developed by uh, gentlemen in the American Bible Society and the uh, American Philosophical Research Society and other groups like this that uh, 
well, had a very racist view of the world. Now we can't, you know, blame them all together because many people were uh, just, you know, racist back then. It's just the way people saw the world uh, politically. They saw race as sort of a political thing that could be used for a political purpose. And I mean, <laughs> that really hasn't changed much. We're we're still very much living in that world today. So uh, it all starts with these Ivy League schools as as gilded as their reputations are and as polished as their Ivy Towers are. Uh, their foundations are seeped in blood and, uh, well, the mire of human suffering. So, yeah, when we walk around a city like New Haven, it's hard to uh, admire the splendor without recognizing the uh, savagery that it took to create all that. And I, I do mean savagery on the part of the colonists, not the <laughs> Native Americans, as they were called savages by these same folks. So, yeah, it's yeah, yeah it's a, it's a very um, <clears throat> controversial history, even to this day. You know, because of the political, um, you know consequences of maybe let's say something being done to uh, maybe reinstate the native americans rights to land right this would be something that would <laughs> upheaval send the country into an upheaval if all of a sudden all the landowners were asked to give their land back to the original owners right so yeah i think it's pretty obvious why that won't happen anytime soon but um, maybe that's why this history has been left, you know, in the realms of esoterica because they don't want people to feel, uh, that guilt or even be able to recognize that guilt that, you know, some people in this country, uh, you know, should feel really, I mean, they deserve to feel the guilt. I think they, they probably like want, yeah, they probably want that. I mean, I'm just I'm thinking about it in terms of consciousness, like overall, what it. This might be like far, far out there, but um, like how the institutions and in Yale is re responsible for shaping like the entire like perception of generations of people, how we relate to our selves our bodies the earth right um and and then and what that what kind of pro projection i guess that forms or something because now i'm thinking about like the <clears throat> the egyptian architecture and the art and the, the architecture and the, like the statues um like the nasamaguchi work and um uh how and the, the rituals of it all and how the egyptians were about uh like this breeding like the um what do you call it with the human bodies and the animal heads and whatnot anthropomorphic so like this, like the like transhumanist stuff. Oh, 
um, and how like starting like throughout the ages and every age, how the uh, the institutions like Yale, like the, the whole thing is it like about what I just said. So like if we're not if we're looking to them to tell us the way uh real like life works and you know what science is and how and how all these and like what history is and what um you know all these like they compartmentalize everything so mm. then it creates a certain narrative and we all live by that narrative without in and, and and that's not how the native americans lived right they lived in uh mm-hmm. In a world that was not compartmentalized, I'm sure there's a more eloquent way to put it, but yeah, great. Well said, Tara. Yeah. Now, I do want to share my screen and show everybody the Asamanaguchi Sculpture Garden because it's, uh, you know, only thanks to you, Chad, that I even, we even recognized the importance of this uh, structure According to this plaque, it was built in uh, 1963. Um, I don't think I could zoom into it, but yeah, I think that says 1963. Uh, Keep off the wall (laughs) in big, bold letters there. (laughs) Very inviting. Uh, You have to like crane your neck to like look over this damn wall and you can't even touch it, but... Yeah, here's the here's the sculpture garden from above, and uh, I think it really was designed for the people like in the building itself. Clearly, you know, you get a much better view from um, the window here. And Chad, I think you have a picture of it taken from that angle that you shared. But yeah, very interesting. You know, I was walking mm-hmm. last week giving a tour to someone who uh, was on a cross country trip and messaged me and said, "Hey, Mark, I'm going to be." traveling through new haven i'm wondering if we can meet up i said absolutely let's go for a little walk and uh i took this gentleman who's from texas down uh high street we walked down the corpse road and then i found this i'm like holy crap you know i tell the guy i'm like i never seen this before i know ne- i never even thought to walk towards this side of the memorial library and even when I did, it was like so obscured from view. Like you really can't see this unless you're leaning over the wall to look at it. So, yeah, it's just not designed for public consumption. That's the feeling I get when I'm standing and looking at this. Uh, you can see there's like a cube with like chunks, almost like a tube is running through it. Like there's chunks out of the square. And those same tubes look like they're connected to the circle there, right? This sort of uh, uh, symbol for the abyss. And we also Square have the circle. Yeah, we also have this kind of pyramid. It might might be a little harder to see there, but there's a raised pyramid right there, and the whole tile pattern uh, itself is, I mean, kind of reminiscent of uh, well, Vesica Pisces, but it's kind mm-hmm. of repeats. So it's it's almost like a sine wave. It's almost like one of these globalist symbols. So are those, it looks like this is the cube on a track and the circle itself is also on a track on those like ecliptical no, lines well, there's there? No, there's no track. That's just the seam between the tiles. Um, no, I know. I know. I meant, but like on that, like, cause 
because if so, it reminds me a lot of like an astrological pattern. Yeah, like yeah, were, it's on the scene. On it's the, on the scene. Collide at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, that's I mean that's a crazy piece of art, it's on a, and knowing it comes from the Gucci like that, it's it's got some crazy significance that. Um, that's really fascinating, man. Great, great job. And these are your photos that you took here. Yeah, some of them are. Uh, some of them Chad had. Uh, I don't know. Ch I don't think Chad took them, but you found them online, I imagine. And then uh, I'm about to show those, unless you were planning on showing those slides at some point, Chad. If if so, I'll let you take it away. But yeah, these are these are photos from me. If, uh, but here, yeah, here's a slide that Chad made. So I don't want to read it. Chad, do you want to These read are, it? Yeah, sure. These are actually Noguchi quotes out of one of his books about this project. So ah. uh, he said the pyramid is used to symbolize the geometry of the earth or the past. Its apex is introduced another point, infinity. The pyramid shares the symbolism of the mound that covers bodies of the dead. Wow. It is a stone mound. It introduces perfection. The pyramid conveys the twofold meaning of integration and convergence. It's the ideal image of synthesis. So he literally describes it as a mound covering dead bodies, which, you know, we kind of got done talking about. Well, and, and I, I didn't mention the circle. This is also new. I should mention uh, before yeah. you go on, Chad, the. What's really interesting is this complex where Osama Noguchi's uh, sculpture garden is, it's about at body level. So keep in mind, this sculpture garden is only uh, 100 feet from the road, and the road on the immediate si other side of the road is the cemetery that we were just looking at. So this sculpture garden, not only is it right next to the cemetery, mm -hmm. but if you're standing in that center area of the sculpture garden and looking towards the cemetery, I mean, if you did like one of those, like, uh, I don't know, like C like X-ray vision and you did like a, you know, a chart of what you're looking at, you'd be looking at bodies, you know, like when archeologists mm -hmm. do like a cutaway of the side of mm -hmm. a, a cliff or something like you know, it's on the bot. It's on the burial level. So I don't know. Uh, that's worth pointing out. And also on the green, a few mm -hmm. blocks away, there are still to this day six thousand uh, bodies buried in unmarked graves underneath a public park. So you could just walk around on top of somebody's mm -hmm. grave from four hundred years ago. Yeah. Wow. All right, the circle, according according to Noguchi, he said this 10-foot-tall circular disc, it's a sun and represents energy, the source of life. Now, the circle has a hole in its center, signifying the abyss, the mirror, the question mark. The circle can also be seen as a zero, the decimal zero, or the zero of nothingness, from which we come to which we return. So he's describing a point of origin. All Stargate and Portal stories, there's a point of origin where you can return. I think that's what this circle represented. The sun is a star, Stargate. Now the cube, he said the cube stands on a corner point and symbolizes chance. The human condition and its relationship with nature, science, and technology. 
Now, all three of these objects he put in a, he said in another slide I made, he said that these were, the point of this was to make a triangulation between these three objects. So that was our Noguchi's wow. quotes for this now, moment. When somebody... I think Mark, I think Mark, I was probably discovering the same, same time as you were. I think literally, like you were probably finding this when I was finding it too, because I just found it when I was looking at the Bionicki library. Huh. So that so same we like kind of week, discovered at the same time, I think that same week. Well, yeah, for folks who don't know, like, uh, you know, behind the scenes, we have a little telegram private group where we share info with each other. And yeah, only like two days before that, Chad had sent me uh, or like a week before that, Chad had sent me the um, sort of and I'm going to share my screen again to show you guys this because this is really cool. I really appreciate it's the first you. time I'm hearing of any of this. Well, you got to check the telegram, the telegram group, group. I didn't even you missed I didn't it. even see that. I missed it. But Chad, you made these really cool slides comparing the building itself to this uh, this type of stone structure that we find around New England, the pedestaled boulder. Uh, much more easy to visualize now that we have this really cool slide you made. Uh, but yeah, wow, that's fascinating. So you were creating this and looking into it the same week I went down and uh, and took a little walk around. Uh, that's interesting. It's been too cold yep. for for exactly. a walk. So yeah, good timing. Um, wow. So uh, what do you think about that? The triangulation. The triangulation. Uh, when somebody triangulates three objects like that, is there like? Uh, you know, like how can we extrapolate beyond the triangle? Is there something maybe that the triangle is pointing at possibly? Because to me, just based on like visualizing it in my mind, it is pointing at, it's pointing at the cemetery, the pyramid. If you draw the, the triangle and focus mm -hmm. on the pyramid side of it, that triangle corner is pointing towards the, the cemetery. So there's one. Yeah, it could be the inside of the triangle is important because you got three angles coming from opposite directions. So whatever lies on those angles converge within that triangle, you know, or or it could be the opposite, just like you said. Any of those three angles could be pointing somewhere too. Right, mm. it's kind of a a symbol that can have double double meaning. Yeah, the the holy trinity of the battery, right? Like within the it's like a it's like a divining circle or like these uh like the like a seal like one of um uh king solomon's seals you know seal of jupiter seal of this you know planetary divination in order to have like to work a magical working or divining you you need to put yourself within a seal within a circle so you 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 draw the circle and inside are the uh, the more angular points, and then they have uh, celestial significance. And very clearly, you know, there's like, and when you have the Trinity involved, you, you're having all of the symbology of the one, the two, the three, the whole, the Holy Trinity, explaining like, you know, all of all of the the ethereal powers, and then also or or a battery, right? Like how you got the hot wire the ground wire and the mercurial solution in between and that's that's just really significant that's so funny i'm so glad that 
I was kind of surprised by that. I didn't see it in the telegram because this is great hearing about it for the first time. Like, what a crazy synchronicity to have uh, that these like Stargate connections between Detroit and New Haven. Yeah, that's what a fascinating dig. Absolutely, I'm I'm so stoked. And when I saw that, like I like kind of jumped up in my in my shoes. I'm like, whoa, Naguchi. I know that name. So yeah, yeah, very significant. Here we are. If you guys can see my, can you see Google Earth? I'm sharing my screen. Is it? Yes, sir. Okay. So yep. we're looking at the sculpture garden from above now. Uh, I might take, yeah, okay. It's start some details starting to come in. Nice. So yeah, we can kind of see where the. It sits the, within the quadrangle too. Yeah. So this is, this is the Hewitt hewitt quadrangle and when you're standing in the hewitt quadrangle it does feel like you're in europe like this building here the schwartzman center uh, memorial hall i mean look at those columns on the side of the building not only are they massive but they're made out of a really Hmm. beautiful type of granite that has like a a slight pink a pinkish hue to it uh, which really looks beautiful Uh, i think that Granite actually comes from nearby. Shout out to Rob B., our stonemason friend who knows the geology real well. And he told me that there's a very rare type of pink granite that they use out of Guilford, Connecticut for some of the most important structures in the American nation, from the Lincoln Memorial to the Statue wow. of Liberty to the uh, Washington Monument. So, what's it quarried out of? Do we know? Well, it's quarried out of Guilford, Connecticut, and it's a type of pink pink, uh, granite. And what's interesting, Yale University actually started uh, not in New Haven, Connecticut, but it was a series of different schools, one in Saybrook, Connecticut, one in Branford, Connecticut. And for a very short amount of time, there was a class that was held in Tara and I's hometown, Milford, Connecticut, Peter Pruden, when he was the head professor of Yale at the time when they just had one teacher, uh, he held all the classes at, in Milford. So, yeah, you know, Yale, you can't think of them as, like, kind of being limited to just New Haven. They really are connected very deeply into the history of Connecticut. And uh, Connecticut is nicknamed, uh, it has a couple nicknames. It's nicknamed the Constitution State. But more importantly to what we're talking about now it's nicknamed the Free Stone State. So think hmm. about that. We got Pennsylvania, the Keystone State, and then we got Connecticut, the Free Stone State. Mm-hmm. I think there are other stone states as well. Um, Colorado might be like uh, stone as well. I don't know. I'm not sure hmm. all the nicknames. I, I think I'm thinking of the beer, actually, Keystone Light, but never mind. I'm sorry. I got... <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's significant too. <laughs> but, uh, but anyways, yeah, this is really like one of my favorite areas of New Haven where we're looking right now. Uh, the Yale Law School has some, hopefully the 3D is good enough to where we can see some of these statues. But right here on the Yale Law School, there is a uh, statue on top of one of these towers that's essentially like a goat with horns and hooves and I think he has like a school hat on and he's col- holding a book. 
So pan is it? It's it's pan. Essentially, it's pan. Yeah, and like that's just one of many. There are owls everywhere. Uh, We can go down High Street a little bit and see how High Street becomes a walking path right here. This is all. There's no. There's no car traffic on this road. This is all foot traffic. So. This is that road that leads to the cemetery. It's known as High Street. High Street's always, you know, whenever you go into a small town, High Street, they usually have a High Street. And, uh, you know, most of the time, some of the more wealthy uh, houses are built on High Street because of the high elevation, but also because of the, like, status that's perceived by being, like, above others, right? So High Street's kind of significant to this uh, conversation. Here's uh, the Sterling Memorial Library, which has some really interesting things depicted on the front here. I don't know if the 3D image data is going to be clear enough for us to see those, but... uh, they have Romulus and Remus, Quetzalcoatl. Uh, all the creation stories. Basically, yeah, all the creation stories from like the seven major like languages around the world, or I guess you can call them like the seven major like human groups. So they have like something from the Chinese, from the Aztec, from the Sumerian, from the Hebrew, from... African civilization from North American civilization and uh, maybe like one other that I'm forgetting, probably like uh, Arabic possibly. But yeah, it's very interesting. The symbols that are on this entrance to the library here, some Egyptian symbols, of course. Um, They have Abraxas, the chicken snake god, as Sam Tripoli likes to call him. Can't quite get that name out of my (laughs) head. Thanks to him. Um, but yeah, here's High Street a little bit. We're going southbound down High Street, which uh, can't go that way. It's a one-way street. But here's Harkness, the tower, which was built by Standard Oil. Uh, Harkness was a beneficiary of Standard Oil. I think his father was uh, something Harkness, Stephen Harkness, who was a mem- you know, member of the board with Rockefeller there. So this really amazing. Oh, yeah, Harkness is hard. This amazing uh, ornate tower, the 3D imaging doesn't just, it doesn't do it justice. I'll pull some photos up in a moment. But all this stuff is right here on this really odd street. And of course, our friends, uh, the Skull and Bones Tomb, Skull and Bones Society here. Uh, Let's just point out something very interesting, okay? Uh, There are no trees, at least there are no trees of this size at all in front of the tomb. But, of course, the our friends at Google decided to animate a bunch of trees <laughs> in front of the Skull and Bones tomb uh, to make it harder to see. Isn't that funny? Tara, there are no, t- like, right? I'm not yeah, making that up. There's none. There's no trees in front of the Skull and Bones Jeez. tomb. So why, why do they have these wow. really wacky... Look, there's no trunk. Clearly on that tree. fake trees. Yeah, look at that. I mean, could you imagine <laughs> who, what like Skull and Bones dork is at Google who had to like sneak in one night and like do that animation job? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. And then, you know, uh, speaking of obscuring it, how this is actually the original. Obs- yeah, how much does that guy get paid? <laughs> um, this is the original obstruction that makes the tomb even harder to see so 
This building to our right is the original art museum. This to our left is the new art museum. And at some point in time, Skull and Bones sold the property here to create this new art museum. And they decided to bridge the two art museums together. Uh, there are naked winged harpies on both sides of these archways here. That's right. You heard me right. Naked women with wings uh, <laughs> on either side of these. And you know, full display, you know, kids walking around. You can see breasts maybe for your first time uh, on the Yale artwork here. But, yeah, right on the other side of this bridge is the tomb. And I always think, like, well, they have a Starbucks right here at this corner. So, you know, they don't want all the traffic to see where the Skull and Bones tomb is. So they maybe that, you know, helped uh, push them to create this bridge here. Again, I, I don't have any proof that that's why they built that bridge there, but they do they definitely were involved in the art museum's construction. So, uh, and back here, which you'll never get this view from uh, being in New Haven. You can only get this view from the computer here. This is their secret uh, garden behind the Skull and Bones building. They have this uh, secret courtyard, which is only accessible from the tomb. So... And another sculpture garden, too, as well, which, again, only accessible to Yale students. Um, and we can only see them using these really weird <laughs> 3D images. You barely make out what that is. It's probably a picnic table or something. But, um, yeah, kind of odd. You have these double towers. I don't know enough about architecture any... to uh, to tell you what these towers signify, but there, there aren't any other... Um, Towers quite like that, at least that I've seen in New Haven. So I Have think you befriended any Yale students yet to uh, potentially get you on, or how hard is it to? Because I know a lot of some uh, no universities you can like kind of walk around on campus and encourage yeah, oh, yeah. without getting harassed too much. No, this is a totally open campus. There are portions that are um, locked off with gates that are only accessible by key card. Uh, there are some buildings that you can go inside of, like the libraries and whatnot. But no, you you got to understand that we're talking about some of the most privileged students in the world, not just the country, the world. Uh, and these are students, for the most part, outside of the ones that get there on scholarship. There are people who grow up in a higher portion of society. They live in an upper echelon of society. They spend their lives well to do so for me a blue collar kid to walk around yale i'm not gonna have much luck befriending i mean maybe sure i'm there's I'm, i've had people on my podcast that are yale graduates but you have, you have to understand the culture of the school a they have no incentive to fraternize with people below their social status b uh they're focused on school c they're focused on making friends who are within their caliber of social reach uh and four they're also you know living in a system that's designed to push you up to your senior year where you join one of these secret societies so there are no freshmen sophomore or juniors a part of these secret societies um and, you know, that leaves it, you know, however many seniors there are in a given class, 
those are the only people that are really in the know. Uh, and then however many seniors there are, only, you know, 15 of those go to any given secret society. So it's a very small number of people that are privileged to this information, and they're very hard to access given the you know, culture that they're a part of. Sure, there might be like a few people that, you know, because their father was a part of it, they go and become a part of it. Maybe they don't see eye to eye with uh, what's going on and they drop out, right? I'm sure that's happened once or twice. But the uh, commitments you have to make and keep to be a part of Yale University alone are already strenuous enough to make you sort of well, suspicious and apprehensive about, you know, doing anything that could uh, jeopardize your place in the institution, right? I mean, you're spending uh, most likely a lot of money to be there. Even though you're wealthy, it's still a value to you to, to graduate successfully. So, yeah, no, they're not going to just let some schmuck into their secret society building, Roman. What do you think? Maybe a girlfriend or two. I, I just thought maybe you would like wear like a tuxedo, go around. Oh, you want me to? You want me hat. to? You want me to to try to like do like a Gilbert Grape thing and ingratiate myself into the <laughs> the the people? Is that what you're saying? I gotta I gotta become yeah. one of them. I mean, hey, we could, and we could, if we, yeah, yeah, there you go. Oh, I mean, we could set up a whole, we can do a whole heist. I mean, I'm down. Well, that's uh, already happened. Uh, not that we're going into skull and bones too much, but in eight, in the 1800s, most of the students were against the secret society culture. There's a lot of underclassmen that signed petitions saying, you know, we're never going to be a part of a secret society that never really got enough momentum to end the secret societies. Obviously, they still exist to this day. But there was a time when people were not happy with Skull and Bones and the other secret societies, you know, having so much control over Yale culture and even the management of the school itself. Uh, a lot of the people who have become president or, you know, treasurer or so on have been members of these Yale secret societies. So, but there was a group called the Order of the File and Claw that broke in in the 1870s, I believe. And they, because of their break in, they found a bunch of things about the skull and bones that we may never have found out otherwise. Things like uh, their German origin, their collection of skulls, uh, their preponderance to furnish it with black velvet so they have a completely black velvet furnishings i mean even down to the walls are coated in black velvet which is kind of interesting kind of makes me think of like an hp lovecraft type of novel where like the characters like inside the belly of some like living thing you know like black velvet on the walls um but yeah they, they broke in, and because of the break-in, Skull and Bones um, expanded the building, uh, made it twice the size and probably twice as secure. So I don't think there have been any break-ins since then, and I, I wouldn't recommend it. I don't think it's very smart. I mean, you're dealing with a group that <laughs> has uh, manipulated the world's the world uh, affairs of the world, literally. I mean, World War One, World War Two. Uh, the testing of the Manhattan Project and the nuclear bombs. I mean, 
Skull and Bones and Yale graduates have been involved in a lot of these things. So, yeah, they're they're clearly, well, not just a lot of things, but those three things that I just mentioned. So they clearly have connections to the military-industrial complex, uh, and they're very wealthy. Not exactly the type of people I want to get on the wrong side of, but uh, luckily for us, all of the information that I've found is already out there. It's already available. You just have to dig it up. You know, I don't think people should necessarily break in and do things that are against the law because then you're stooping (laughs) to their level, you know, like you, you shouldn't fight fire with fire. You shouldn't, you know, have to break the law to apprehend criminals, right? I think... All that needs to be done is uh, for brave folks to expose these crimes. And that's what we're doing with this podcast. I mean, maybe not every episode. You know, some episodes are a little more lighthearted. But when we talked about the serial killer in Austin, Texas, you know, it's really in the same vein that we're talking about this. Like, you know, what if there is a mechanism or a system that is against our greater interests as human beings the same type of system that may you know set a serial killer loose in order to you know (laughs) bring a demand for street lights like that's the same kind of monster that would like you know sell guns to both sides of uh of a war right and that's exactly what happened in world war one and two and that's exactly what skull and bones did And, uh, you know, New Haven is a huge manufacturer of weapons in its past. The Browning rifle was created and uh, manufactured in New Haven out of the Whitney factory. Uh, Winchester repeating rifle, the the rifle that won the West and defeated the Native Americans, was invented and distributed out of New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, We have the... Sikorsky Helicopter Company and the Groton Submarine Base. We have some of the largest defense contractors. So Connecticut, as small as it is, used to be called the uh, the nation's, uh, I think the nation's armada or the nation's, uh, what is the word for armory, armory, the nation's armory, because Connecticut produced all of these weapons. And you have to wonder, well, why? Why, 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 why Connecticut? Well, uh, because all these families that are from, you know, Revolutionary War families have made millions of dollars being sort of uh, dynasties in American history, political and economic industrial dynasties. Well, they have uh, realized that the most lucrative things are guns, oil, drugs and uh sex right so that's what they that's what they push that's what that's what new haven i think has has made its bread and butter on is uh guns oil and drugs i mean the whole drug side of it we didn't get into much with this conversation but anybody who looks far enough into skull and bones finds out that they are uh connected very deeply to the opium crisis going all the way back to its beginning with the opium wars in China. So. Wow. Yeah. I just looked it up like Ruger, um, Sturm Ruger and co, which is apparently the biggest gun producer in the States, uh, is right out of Southport, Connecticut. Is that pretty nearby? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the Gold Coast, though. New Haven's not quite the Gold Coast. Everything between Greenwich and Fairfield, Connecticut is considered the Gold Coast because that's where a lot of the New York wealth settled. People who made a lot of money in New York City uh, or, or made a lot of money somewhere and needed to do business in New York City, they started, you know, towns like Greenwich and or f- settle in places like Greenwich and Southport, Westport. There's tons of companies that have their headquarters in Connecticut just in that little strip between New York City and uh, Fairfield, Connecticut. So, yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting. Again, you see like a super concentration of wealth and then you also see like crime and all these military industrial complex like companies you have to wonder like is the crime being you know pushed by these same companies because they profit off of a violent world right i mean think about it when the world's in chaos who profits the most the guy who sells bullets yeah absolutely i mean that's yeah we don't need it but we create it we create everything this entire fuckery that's going on uh yeah goodness wow i had no idea that's that's actually a really big deal uh the weapons manufactured out of there that's a huge deal yeah Um, well and it you know it makes sense considering like new york city and boston right like those are pretty much like the power centers and you could probably add philadelphia and washington dc in there as you go further south but for the north as far as the north is concerned the power is concentrated in new york city and boston the populations are concentrated there so you know you need to have military bases around those areas to keep those people safe theoretically if that's what these you know bases are really for uh and you know it makes sense to to be in a place like Connecticut to you know, do all that and arm those two places, right? So, yeah, I think it, it's circumstantial, but it's also it's the reason why Connecticut's one of the most or, or is the wealthiest state in the country because of our connection to the military industrial complex, one hundred percent. You guys see this one here, Sturm. Yeah, yeah, this guy's business partners and started up the Ruger Rifle Company. It was called like Ruger and Stern, but this guy was born in Westport. Graduated from Yale, Yale. Yale football star, yeah. Died of hepatitis. I wonder where he got that. Hmm. <laughs> How what oh 1923. Okay. Huh, interesting. Wow, he he died young. 28 years old to develop a whole gun company. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm 28 years old. What the hell? This guy done a lot yeah. more in his short life than I have in my life. His big thing was uh, he he designed the Germanic, uh, Germanic heraldic eagle found on all the Ruger guns, and that's uh, hmm. you know. Uh, Do you see the, who the he co-founded? Do you see who he co-founded? Uh, yeah, yes, it is this gentleman right here. And what's um, interesting about uh, what, William what Prescott, B. Ruger. Prescott, Arizona. That's interesting. Where's he from? William B. Ruger, New York. Okay. New York. Died yeah. in Prescott, Arizona. Prescott Bush. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, the weapons connection is deep, man, and the German connection is, is deep, too, to uh, Skull and Bones, at least. Maybe not... Uh, Maybe not the whole uh, state of Connecticut. That's more of like a Pennsylvania thing. They've got a lot of Germans in, in Pennsylvania. But we ought to do a episode 
on Philadelphia soon and get uh, Ross Ben and Michael mm-hmm. Wan on the mm-hmm. show. I just had Ross Ben on my show this morning. Uh, it was a great conversation. We got into some cool stuff, and he invited me to join him on uh, From the 40th Parallel at some point in time to get into all this New Haven stuff. So I'm still researching. I know I kind of went all over the place. I hope that wasn't uh, too unstructured, but what do you guys think? Any questions before I sort of wind down uh, the presentation? Uh, Yeah. What's up with uh, all the lore on the underground? uh, We we looked at Google maps, right? And we got to see all the above ground stuff. What's up? What have you found about the underground tombs and tunnels and Yale? Mm -hmm. So, I want to show you guys some more stuff on Google Earth, but while I'm while I'm doing that, I might glitch a little bit. Hopefully, my audio doesn't break up. But um, essentially, the underground portion we just kind of looked at when we saw the Asamanaguchi thing, right? Consider that uh, the Asamanaguchi Sculpture Garden is technically below ground level, and I think that is significant. Why is he making a triangle in the underground portion of New Haven? Uh, think about it, right? That rare book memorial library, or I always call it a memorial library. It's a manuscript library. That library, as we've seen, holds a bunch of really rare documents, but it also holds a bunch of really important books that, uh, yeah, are for the most part underground. That structure, you know, it's like three stories high above ground, but I think it's probably like two or three more below And all of New Haven, since it's a university campus, has an underground portion to it. Because before the, you know, automobile, these campuses needed to manage snow. And, you know, shoveling snow was costly because you needed a whole bunch of people to do it. And these posh, you know, students weren't exactly going to go out and shovel it themselves. So a lot of times these universities would build like underground tunnels connecting dorms and connecting the dorms to the uh, libraries and, you know, other areas of the school that students would need to go to, uh, you know, to limit their exposure to the cold during the winter and also mitigate that need, immediate need for snow removal, right? You know, students wouldn't necessarily miss class just because there's a couple feet of snow on the ground. So, Yeah, that explains why the underground network exists, but it doesn't quite explain everything about the underground portions of New Haven. Um, Basically, Chris Milligan suspects that the Skull and Bones tomb leads underground into the cemetery. So when we look at... New Haven from above ground and try to imagine what the underground looks like. Let me know when you guys can see the screen here. Yeah. Scene. Okay, so here we are again over the art museums and the uh, infamous tomb here, Skull and Bones. And Chris Milligan, author of Fleshing Out Skull and Bones, when I spoke to him, he postulated that they go underground under the street and the path goes all the way down the street, all the way down, all the way down past the libraries, past the book and snake tomb, 
which probably has an entrance to the tunnel itself. As a matter of fact, right here in the back corner, this is how they get into the tomb. They never use the front door of the Book and Snake tomb. Actually, when Tara and I were giving a tour last year, we saw some students entering the Book and Snake tomb through that entrance there. But, uh, yeah, so we know there's an underground portion of New Haven here. Yeah. Uh, and Chris Milligan suggests that the tunnel goes under the cemetery into a hmm. crypt, and that crypt is somewhere. I'm going to try to find the exact grave. It's It comes up back up above ground somewhere around here where they have this really ornate um, tomb which, you know, maybe the Skull and Bones Obscures went over and obscured this too because I'm not <laughs> finding it. Uh, but, yeah, there is a tomb, St. John's Tomb, over here somewhere. And I, you know what? I'll show you guys a picture of it instead. That's even better. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the theory that's, is... That's a huge under... That's a massive runway to go if it actually goes all the way through there. That's, in, that's intense. Well, they, they have golf carts in this, uh, and I don't think that they would use golf carts in, like, a ceremony... They probably blindfold the initiates and have them walk the entire length, right, in the darkness, thinking that they're going to be, like, sacrificed or something, and then they come out all spooked out of, you know, the cemetery and have to find <laughs> their way back to the dorm, right? I think it's more about the, the you know, ceremony or the, the, the feeling of it all. But, yeah, it is, it is quite a distance. I remember being underneath the... Uh, school of business when I was a delivery guy. Um, and I looked at my phone and I looked at my GPS cause I was driving. So I had my GPS open and I saw that I was underneath the street and I'm like, hold on a second. I thought I was in this building, but now I'm underground in a tunnel under the street. So it occurred to me in that moment that this network of tunnels didn't like they weren't confined to the foundations of these buildings. Like I wasn't in the basement of this building. I was in the tunnel network and I took a wrong path down a hallway. I was walking for like 10 minutes. I'm like, I don't think I'm supposed to be in here. Like there's cameras. It's like a bleak white hallway with like surgical room lighting. I mean, (laughs) it's you could film a horror movie in a place like that. It has a creepiness to it. But yeah, uh, I have firsthand experience in those tunnels. Uh, I don't work that job anymore. But yeah, synchronicity had it that I was a Yale delivery bakery guy. So that kind of I didn't work for Yale, but worked for a bakery with Yale. And uh, yeah, kind of got to see all this stuff firsthand. Trying to find a picture right now of St. John's tomb because it's really strange. It's the only gravestone or grave piece in the cemetery that also has uh well it also has the same sun disc winged sun disc as the uh, entrance which is really strange yeah especially for somebody like saint john like why, why did they even have saint john's tomb did he die in connecticut well no. it's not the saint john okay it's a man whose last name is saint john and uh, this is a fairly common last name, but I did manage to track down some information about who this guy was, although he is kind of mysterious. 
Now, you can imagine, if you're seeing this, yep, you guys are seeing it, that somebody could walk in, you know, from, like, some underground, like, ladder, come up out of this tomb, right? I mean, it's big enough. There's a little door right there. There's an entire inside area where this man is buried inside of a crypt, right? So here's this St. John's crypt. It has this symbol, and it has the same kind of design on the fencing as well. And this is the Sheffield plot. So the Sheffields were members of uh, the Sheffield Scientific School, which was pretty much controlled by Skull and Bones. So we know that this is like Skull and Bones related. Uh, and this, this character, St. John, um, may be an esoteric stand-in for St. John the Baptist. Here's the only surviving image of Samuel St. John. And he was a very wealthy man. This is from his will, this, photo, this uh, you know, illustration or, or whatnot. I read his will, his will, you know, he was giving a lot of money away for somebody who was around back then. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't able to find that much. Uh, somebody that I've had on my podcast, Michael Hoffman, he sent me a little bit of information that he was able to dig up on St. John. Um, I don't remember all of that off the top of my head, but yeah, he, he's got some, some skills at uh, researching that I don't. So I got to go back and reference that, but either way, yeah, New Haven, St. John, and uh, who knows, maybe there is an underground entrance right here that leads to that underground network. Um, one other thing that I've heard kind of a rumor uh, about New Haven is that this underground network or of tunnels is used to kidnap homeless people for science experiments uh, at the hospitals at Yale because it is a surgical college, right? And who knows, maybe from time to time they uh, are unable to find a suitable, you know, experiment subject. Mm -hmm. So they have to like farm one from the homeless population in New Haven. I mean, it's, it's just fake. They own them. And yeah, they do kind of feel like they own the homeless the way that they, you know, manage them. Uh, but yeah, so one of the rumors that I've heard that goes along with that homeless kidnapping story is that people are taken up to this building right here that has these uh, pyramidal roofs. You see these roofs here? The three rooftops kind of are like, uh, well, the pyramids at Giza, right? The way that they're situated mm. next to one, each, one another. And I was told that up here in this chamber on March 22nd every year, there is some sort of uh, mock Aztec ritual where they dissect a semi-living human heart and eat a piece of it right the the guys who are about to uh you know basically commit themselves to being skull and bones knights for life right because you are knighted into the skull and bones the same way you are knighted into you know the templars roman yeah or or even like you know the royals right the the royal family knights people i think bono is a knight right and all these other celebrities are knights even sickos like that guy jimmy savile was a knight so yeah the knights uh at night do some pretty weird stuff that should be uh you know 
only done in, in darkness, I guess. That's how they operate, hence the word night. But, yeah, here's New Haven in a nutshell. Another interesting pattern from the pathwork here among the many different interesting pathworks. Also, the cemetery used to have a working canal running along the northern boundary, which symbolic, you know, moving, running water, sort of carrying the souls out and away. This canal used to go all the way up to Hartford, the capital, and the canal uh, now is a walking path. Not in New Haven, the, there's a road here, but uh, further up, the canal, the old canal, has been turned into a greenway, this new greenway project where they're trying to create a bicycle path from Florida to Maine. Have you guys heard of the greenway project? Uh-uh. Yeah, it's really mm-hmm. interesting. They're trying to connect basically the whole eastern seaboard with one bicycle path. Um, I don't know who for who, maybe, you know, bicyclists maybe, but. Oh, yeah, people will ride that. Yeah, so. Along the coast the whole way too? Mm-hmm. Uh, That's pretty cool. Yeah, I imagine I mean, as close to the coast as they can manage. In some places, you you can't get that close to the coast. Uh, but yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and it goes through New Haven in this really weird spot right next to America's first cemetery. So uh, who knows? Maybe that's symbolic. Uh, but yeah, I could talk about New Haven all day, all night. I love it. I love like being kind of... <laughs> initiated in this area so to speak you know not by any one group or anything like that but like me initiating myself into this uh, journey of exploration you know 10 or so years ago when I was in college I decided you know I'm going to drop out and I'm going to pursue my own interests I'm going to try to learn uh, what suits me and grow my mind in a way that I see fit and uh I'm really proud of that decision because since then I've made some really tremendous friends like you both, my lovely girlfriend, Tara, of course. And, uh, yeah, I know my life's completely changed ever since I've taken that risk, uh, to be autodidactic and trust myself, you know? So yeah, for everybody listening, who's inspired, I hope you're inspired. I hope you channel that into your own, uh, local research and, uh, Furthermore, I hope you join us here on Esoteric America to contribute to the conversation because I'm just one person, Tara's just one person, Chad, you're just one person, and Roman, you're one person. Together our powers combine, and uh, we need more to add to that uh, harmonious convergence, right? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Really quick, too, before we get too far away from the Samuel St. John character, I couldn't help myself but to look up uh, as much a little bit that I could just real quick. And apparently it's pretty significant because uh, he was a professor um, and studied uh, geology and uh, natural philosophy, which is like the same type of sciences that all the alchemists were calling themselves back in the day um and uh francis bacon who was running around you know very famous in these quarters in these circles Mm -hmm. and we were talking earlier about the type of granite you know when you're studying the constituents of geology and um you know putting lectures in on this at places like yale and i just thought that was really interesting i was like wow what a fascinating character and then he uh, uh 
you know, is obviously like in some famous lineage bloodline of the St. John line, which is very significant in esoteric circles as well. St. John the Baptist and the beheading of that and that entire story is yeah. very, it's very significant. Well, so, it's, it's absolutely so it's kind of a cool character looking to. It's absolutely connected to this whole story. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you're focusing on that because I'm kind of, I left out some important details. A, New Haven's charter was based on John Cabot's exploration of New England, which took place on St. John the Baptist's feast day, January mm. or June 24th. So, you know, the colony's charter, the New Haven colony's charter actually had St. John the Baptist's, you know, date in it as a significant date. Uh, also, uh, skull and Bones, you know, sort of worships the de- decapitated head, which some people think, you know, is connected to that same worship that the hmm. Templars had of St. John the Baptist's decapitated head. Um, again, I'm sharing my screen, maybe not directly related to what you were just saying, but I couldn't help but give you guys an even better image of that double-sided pentagram here. Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, clearly hinting at something there it's not a perfect double-sided pentagram i mean it's kind of uh you got to like see it imagine it but um this fountain is eight-sided and this is also significant as we'll see Mm -hmm. in future episodes when we hopefully have the uh really awesome court uh court how, how am i forgetting his last name what's your friend's last name Chad Court Mick Lindall. Yeah, Court Lindall. It's not Mick Lindall. It's Court Lindall. Thank you, Tara. Court Lindall talks about these eight-sided, uh, you know, towers of the wind. I think they're called, and it's definitely significant. Uh, it's a significant esoteric structure, and I don't think it's an accident that they chose to put that eight-sided fountain right at the center of this uh, sort of double sided pentagram thing it kind of also looks like alistair crowley's unicursal hexagram from this angle but uh you can see the 2020 black lives matter protest uh left its impact right there on temple street which you know you can think of that as a sort of geomancy in itself that they would you know, mm-hmm. paste this large enough for it to be seen from an airplane above, you know, right on this very significant portion of uh, American history. So, yeah, yeah, you know, right where... This shot of- right here is like the best to see that pentagram, five-pointed star. Mm. Hmm. Kind of, I kind of see it like right... If you go scroll out just a little bit more. How about now? Do you see it better now? <laughs> No, I saw it better the other way. What do or you like, think, there's Chad? a bigger one. I feel like, yeah. uh, from oh, like oh, you're this saying connecting angle. this side too? Yeah, yeah. That's huh. pretty nuts. It's pretty wild. And they, I should mention, they do a bunch of concerts. They do a bunch of concerts on this portion of the green and. Before Tara and I started this journey together, she had a very significant uh, experience right here uh, at one of the summer concerts. You want to talk about that? Well, I just, I saw um, a a rock apparition and 
you know, timing's everything. So this would of make the rock, sense, but the rock. You saw that? Part? Did he? Of a rock, not oh, oh. or the what rock. This rock. What did it look like? What was it? Did, did it? It was um. It was a. It was a. It actually looked like like a parallelogram, I guess. She essentially saw like a vision of a stone. Like there was no stone physically there, but as she was dancing, she saw like a small uh, rectangle shaped stone, right? Yeah. Like sticking out of the ground. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting for both of us is like, you know, I was I was never really particularly interested in stones. I love crystals. I've always loved crystals for a while, but I, stones never like really grabbed my attention all that much yeah, until until her and I started <laughs> dating. I started looking around and like when we go on little road trips here and there, I started to think like there are a lot of damn stone walls in this state, like too many, and in places where you know who like. How how could they have been built? And I've we've talked about this on a prior episode, but yeah, it's just really interesting that she had this kind of like vision of a stone in this very significant place uh, at a very significant time for the both of us, and it's really uh, resulted in this like journey to uh, of discovery and, and yeah, involving stones, but so much more. I mean, we're not like geologists; we're really more like uh, you know anthropologists historical anthropologists in, in a way right like all of us are you know as we do this research whether it's a place that we've been to or a place we could search on our computer uh we're all kind of piecing the human story together uh through experience yeah there's a yeah. yes yeah uh Oh, Chad, did you have some, uh, you had something on some trains? Are we going to be able to get into that today at all? Yeah, sure. I, I, I'm curious about that stone, Tara. Did you have the feeling like it was a stone that was there in the past or yeah. a stone you're supposed to discover in the future? Yeah. Yeah, both. Like, both? As a... <laughs> As I was, okay, so I was standing there and dancing. And I, as I saw it, it was this feeling as if like everything's slowed down. And yeah, like I had been there before, like everything started to kind of tune out around me. And I was... Okay. Me, but in a place in the past. Did and it feel like deja vu? There's a, a little... Yeah. I guess that would be the closest That's, that's super thing. interesting. But yeah, I've heard, heard similar stories. Like, I consider, say, the green there, I would consider that kind of the center of town the point of origin is that like the center of everything around there basically exactly the center of everything yeah the whole city's built around a nine square grid and this square is the center square okay now the identical scenario in detroit is that a place i talked about before called campus mars and it's 
Detroit's point of origin. And there used to be a giant stone right there. Now, I didn't know this at first, but I started interviewing people at Hart Plaza one block away a couple years or a while back. And one of the stories I got several times were people saying they had visions of this ancient stone. Hmm. And I started doing some research and I found out that there used to be this ancient stone right there at the point of origin, the center of town. And people were having visions of it, literally. That's exactly what this reminds me of. Like maybe the Native Americans at one point recognized this was a sacred spot. They had marked it with a beautiful stone, and you're getting glimpses of that stone. Maybe. If, yeah. What if the stones that we saw, remember the one we saw in uh, Milford, the Benjamin Franklin uh, stone? So yeah. uh, let me yeah. explain. Let um, me explain more. So Benjamin Franklin, for folks who don't know, plotted uh, a road called the King's Highway. And he, the road went from Washington, D.C. or Philadelphia to Boston, right? I think it was Philadelphia to Boston. It may be Virginia, but I think just Philly. Either way, this road is marked with a bunch of stones that, uh, you know, they just sort of look like regular stones with like these copper plaques, you know, pounded into them. And... Uh, yeah, it's just interesting to think like maybe these stone monuments that we see are like recycled, right? Because they would find it in a sacred place like that, you know, where natives had placed it and say, okay, we, we're not using this here anymore. You know, they defuse the energy and bring it somewhere else and, you know, use it somewhere else. I don't know, kind of, <laughs> I'm sorry, that was a little unrelated, but <laughs> definitely I, I got the vision of when we found that benjamin franklin like marker i was like huh interesting yeah <clears throat> well. i yeah i don't know i didn't think you're the one who saw it not me so i don't know <laughs> what it looked like well yeah you do because like about a week later we went for a hike next to a waterfall and um saw the stone what that I saw. Music playing. That's also significant. What artist Ooh. was it? <laughs> I don't remember. No, some no. jam band. Jam band. Some, uh -oh. Probably wasn't some fish, jam was it? Band. Huh? Wasn't fish. <laughs> no. Very good. Just making sure because those guys will definitely. Putting things in your visuals. No, you know I mean. this was this was a new hate. This is like a park. <laughs> this is like a concert in the park thing. I don't even think you have to pay a ticket for it. This wasn't like some druggy festival. But anyways, anyways, interesting stories. Mm. New Haven definitely is nice. a portal, and I think Tara, as an empath, she can maybe sense these kind of things. What do you think? Yeah. That's definitely a gift that we all have. Well, I think this has uh, been a, a very Mark-heavy episode. I talked a lot. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I don't want to wrap this one up, but uh, Roman, Chad. Oh, wait, no, we have something else. Chad, your train info. What's going on? There, There is a train station in New Haven. I 
ridden on that train a bunch. What's going on with it? Did you find something interesting about the New Haven train situation? Uh, this is oh. actually the older train, the New Haven that is no longer no longer working. I mean, it's out of commission at this point. But And I didn't get into it as deep as I would like, so I'm calling it Esoterica America Homework where I just kind of scratched the surface, and this is something people at home can dig into if they want, because I'm pretty sure there's a lot of goodies in here. And this was called the Gateway to New England, and it was the New Haven Railroad. At one point, it was called the New York-New Haven-Hartford Railroad, but it ran from New York up to Boston, through New Haven, and up to Hartford. And the New Haven Railroad operated in the New England region from 1872 until December 31st, 1968. And it was founded by the merger of the New York and New Haven, Hartford, New Haven Railroads. And it had a total dominance of the railroad traffic in the southern New England for the first half of the 20th century. And we were talking about all the different things that were dominated in this area, the drugs and everything, and transportation was another one of them. And in the 1890s and in early 1900s, the New York banker J.P. Morgan, he sought to monopolize this New England transportation by arranging the New Haven's acquisition of 50 companies, including other railroads, the steamship lines, the buildings and, net, and he built a network of electrified trolley lines, provided inner urban transportation for all of the southern New England. By 1912, the New Haven Railroad operated more than 2,000 miles of track with 120,000 employees, and it practically monopolized traffic from Boston to New York City. And of course, this is where. You know, Monopoly, the game came from. J.P. Morgan monopolizing these railroads. And it all started right here with the New Haven Railroad. And it operated all up through the different world wars. And it would traffic everything from people to war goods. You know, pretty much everything. But J.P. Morgan and his crew monopolized everything from basically New York up to Boston, utilizing... Wow. This New Haven Railroad. And that's really as deep as I got. But, I, you know, I know there's a lot more here. I know at one point after J.P. Morgan built this entire railroad out, I think it was 19, I want to say 1938, but 1930-something, there was a giant hurricane. And the hurricane wiped out the entire railroad system. And you can go back and see images of everybody trying to rebuild the system as quick as they could because it was, for all intents and purposes, the only transportation for, you know, food, for goods, war materials, everything. So it was, it was a big ordeal, this hurricane just devastating this monopoly. So I thought that'd be something cool that, you know, people can dig into a little bit and get back to us if they find anything exciting. Yeah, that reminds me of... Uh some local stories of that hurricane. I lived for a great period of my life in a part of Milford called Woodmont, which is like right on uh, 
on the beach. I know that probably sounds like really cool and fancy to people who have never been to Connecticut, but uh, <laughs> Connecticut beaches are not that great. So it wasn't it wasn't like a beachy neighborhood. But anyways, there's all these stories of like really old trees that uh, really old trees that once were like huge, like giant towering over the other trees that got knocked down in that uh, storm that big hurricane that hit and then hurricane yeah. Sandy knocked down some, but yeah, my grandparents' house had a big Oak tree in the front that was knocked down by that hurricane. So kind of remember hearing about that as a kid. And none other than uh PT Barnum has like a deep connection with this railroad as well. <laughs> of course. How else do you get those elephants from town to town? Exactly. Exactly. And also, you know, who happens to own who who would use this railway the most, but besides Barnum, because he's got his museums in New York, you know, and he's constantly in uh, Connecticut and everything too. There's cause I'd, I'd run across this when we were, I was doing more Barnum research a few episodes back and there was like this huge thread on him and the railways. And I started getting into it a little bit, but it was like, it was just, there was so much, writing on it like they documented the shit out of everything on this railroad with all the scandals and everything and i just started reading i was like man <laughs> i was like i don't you know what i'm gonna turn to something else because uh, there's a lot of railway talk going on here a lot went over my head like the but one one thing that was crazy um and i want to check this connection too so thank you chad for bringing this back up is um the like this kind of push and uh, uh, transport transition from people riding the train and being able to ride the train to when supposedly Henry Ford was paying people to go around and burn and destroy as many train tracks as possible. Um, so then they could produce the T model Fords and everybody would have uh, personal transportation and make the trains obsolete. And that was like a big part of, um, the transition of transportation, because uh, um, we should be so much more further, further technologically advanced on a, on a like a public transportation level. But due to that specific time period with like these these smaller railroads and these different giant uh, megalithic people like J.P. Morgan and, and everything else, and then you have the other side of politics coming in to make. Um, like the personal cars be more of of the sway that society was going to go towards. So it's a whole, that's actually a whole interesting, I feel like we could do an entire episode on that history and railways and stuff and find some pretty prices a lot. Well, a lot. I mean, obviously oil barons, right. And everything. So like a lot of dirty, dirty secrets going in here. Everybody wanted to get into the train business after the Rockefellers too, you know? Yeah. yeah. A lot of bootlegging. Lord, bootleg it out. I think that's a great idea, Roman. I like that. I think maybe we ought to do that as like one of those special episodes, those one-offs that we were talking about, um, where we dive into a particular subject that might, you know, not have a specific location attached to it, but still takes place in esoteric America or maybe like a small little town that uh, has some weird stuff going on that. You know, mm -hmm. we can't spend more than one episode talking about 
One that comes to mind might be uh, like where the Mothman stuff took place, Point Pleasant, Uh-oh. right? Nice, yeah. But we've had a bunch of people reach out and say, hey, you guys should talk about this. You should talk about that. I live here. I live there. Keep them coming. Keep the suggestions rolling in, folks. We need it. Shout out to Loomis from the Chant It Down podcast. He's out there in Hawaii with you, Roman. And he said he would love to see an esoteric America about Hawaii. And he said he would love to uh, share as much as he can uh, because he's been living there for quite a while. So, yeah, I'm excited for our next series. But uh, as far as Connecticut goes, I want to give Tara a chance to give some final thoughts before we completely uh, leave Connecticut for for the time being with the show. We still live here, but uh, <laughs> Tara, any, any final thoughts before we go to a new location with the show? Mm. Um, well, okay, in like a days now, uh, but Well, I think it's interesting with the uh, with all of the skull and bones and the secret societies and all of the money and all of the guns and all of the the <laughs> all of the everything um, coming out of Connecticut. It's interesting too how like it. Connecticut has a little underground music scene that um, that I think was inspired by the like the secret societies and and all of that. But well, the contrast, I guess, is what I'm getting at because it's all like rich and um, rich and well to do and everything, and then. Like underneath all of that, there is like like going to high school. There is a a really big um, hardcore scene, so like an underground secret society kind of thing, I guess. But um, I don't know. Hate hate breed came out of Connecticut. And uh, Milford, actually, the guy who, uh, the guy who started Hate Breed, lives down the street from us. <laughs> oh, nice. Yep. Um, yeah. Not that he wants his personal location put out there, but I, I, he's talked about living in Connecticut. He's a cool guy. <laughs> Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole underground music scene here, I guess is what you're trying to get at, right, Tara? Like the, there's like this underbelly of like, you know, as as wealthy and as suburban as Connecticut may seem from the outside looking in, those kind of environments usually uh, bring out a lot of like suppress or you know they they cause a lot of suppression, which you know kids tend to. Uh, have outbursts, you know, young rebellious youth going to like some uh-huh. dangerous side of town or something to participate in like a warehouse concert or something. I've been to a few uh, of those, you know, just going to some Ooh. weird warehouse room and a band's jamming away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I just think I always just felt like there was something special to the the music scene because it was like everyone was like angry together but it was like a little family and um like Moby Moby actually came out of Connecticut too which is a funny fun fact um and yeah I apparently know. John Mayer <laughs> oh yeah him I mean too. that's pretty significant on a on a size level and now he's like headlining for the uh Grateful Dead too what part of for- Connecticut is he from um, Fairfield oh well yeah the gold makes, coast yeah there's a, there's a lot of celebrities that are from wealthy families so and there's tons of wealthy families in connecticut so i forget the guy's name but i met a guy at, a, at the farmer's market justin long i think is his name he was in a bunch of comedy movies and i gave him a loaf of bread at the farmer's market and i was like oh nice. i know you from somewhere and he got all freaked out he's like yeah i gotta go man there's this uh um, this bread company here called Sundog, and they do ulu turmeric bread and sourdough. It's like, and or they call it ulu olena because olena is the Hawaiian name for turmeric, and ulu is it's called breadfruit, and it's like this like you can eat it green as a starch, or you can like like let it become custardy on the inside, and you can scoop it out and make bread from this fruit you can make pancakes with it and say one ingredient recipe for like really good healthy pancakes from this fruit it's gone and uh anyways i don't know why i'm kind of hungry i guess you've had that tara Mm -hmm. oh tara's eating that too yeah oh you know the ulus yeah the ulus is bomb well, Roman's belly is grumbling, so that's a sign that we should wrap this up. Uh, well, I you think want to, you want to close up, Tara? I just want to because I just found this out today, and I thought it was interesting how, like, all of the um, like the hardcore punk scene, like old zines and um, flyers and whatnot that were created back in the day. Um, they were collected by this guy, Joe Snow, and donated to the, um, uh, uh, to Yukon, the other, like the Connecticut State University there, to the, the, um, let me find his name. The University of Connecticut, huh? Yeah. Yeah, Yukon's a pretty big, uh college as well i mean in comparison to yale it's not uh as wealthy but it's definitely like a significant school and it was to like um to dodd research center which was um thomas dodd research center that was uh um that has collections of um yeah, <laughs> uh, youth culture. So it's called the um, Joe Snow Punk Rock Collection at the Archives and Special Collections um, at the in the University Library there. And um, Thomas Dodd was a he was in the FBI. 
And what? he was um, he's an immigrant from Ireland. His parents were tobacco leaf farmers. And um, he, gradu- he graduated from Yale in 1933 and then went to the FBI in um night in that same year they don't say why he graduated but he went to then he went to fbi yeah for that year um and then the highlight of his career was he tried to capture john dillinger but at the little bohemia lodge um in Manitou Waters, Wisconsin, which is just interesting to me. Um, uh, and he was also associated with the Nuremberg trials. And all of this, this guy, he he found all the zines and punk rock stuff and donated it to the University of Connecticut or another person donated it to his like thing. And a guy who uh, took over the one of the local record labels, Incus Records, who um, like a bunch, a bunch of a bunch of bands were on. Um, he he took that over with his wife and then he started to gather the stuff the flyers and zines and cds and donated it to the um to the the charles dodd okay research center okay that's interesting. So they took Does that they took music culture stuff and donated it to a research center named after an FBI agent. Very, very strange. Um, but interesting. I appreciate you bringing that up, and maybe we ought to dive into that uh, deeper when he comes up again, or maybe we ought to put in a, another uh, homework assignment out there. People, go and look right. this guy up, Charles Dodd, and, and f- see if, what else you can find about him. Yeah get it by now but yeah. apparently you guys got spring heel jack coming out of Connecticut, new haven which is uh i love third wave ska so that's pretty cool mm. oh okay that's a band i thought you were about to tell us there was a cryptid in new haven called the spring heeled jack because that's a cryptid <laughs> i'm pretty sure from england yeah, spring it is jack. yes yeah yeah <laughs> no, there's this band uh that i uh, let's say they were like from like 1990 you know i mean when third wave ska was yeah. Ooh, kind of that reminds me. We haven't right. done any uh, cryptid, Connecticut cryptids, and I can think of two off the top of my head before we wrap up. We can't leave this out because we usually do this with every other location. Uh, there's the Winchester Wild Man, which is just a, you know your typical Sasquatch story uh, from the northwest corner of Connecticut. But then, more interestingly, there is the... Uh, Pukwaji, right? Is that what the name of the little people are? The Mohegan, the Mohegan mm-hmm. tribe has a, a, a tribe of little people that live somewhere in their territory in Connecticut, which, you know, they, they don't really have that big of a footprint in Connecticut anymore. So 
Uh, I wonder where the little people are hiding. I hope the Mohegans keep that secret safe. But, yeah, there are some cryptids in a small state like Connecticut. There's probably more that we're leaving out. But we get a lot of the witch the witch hunt stories and ghosts. And, There's the melon heads, too. And, well, we did talk about the melon heads, but I don't think they count as cryptids. <laughs> I think they count as, like, you know, victims of uh, <laughs> doctors and insane asylums or something. I mean, who knows what happened to the melon heads, but I don't think they count as cryptids maybe i don't know maybe What's the definition of a cryptid i thought it was just well a cryptid is like a creature that's unknown to science melon heads seem more like humans that have like mutated like we know about humans so right am, am i off do you guys get where i'm my cryptid logic or do you think she's right do, do melon heads count as cryptids of course they do thank you <laughs> all right well i'm wrong I'm again <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for touring with us here on Esoteric America. Thank you for uh, taking this tour with us through our home state, and we look forward to uh, our next destination, somewhere closer to Roman's neck of the woods. Roman, the pressure's on you next, buddy. <laughs> Roman. All right. Uh, until next time, folks, you know where to find the three of us, four of us. We're in the links in the description. You can check out Chad's website. You can check out Roman's podcasts with an S. And, of course, Tara and I have our own podcasts, which you can check out, and all the links are in the description. Uh, until next time, folks, enjoy exploring your mysterious, esoteric American backyard. Peace.